Remember when Facebook was boring? Ugh, those were the days. Hours could pass before your friends posted something, and they were actually your friends. And they'd say boring things like, going to the movies today, or I'm excited for spring break. The occasional post on LiveJournal or a custom MySpace page. But now social media is everything. Whole lives can be lived online alone. Have you ever had a friend take a break from social media? Like, where did they go? Where else is there? But being so plugged into online social networks means facing a steady stream of other people's opinions. Everybody needs to comment on the latest controversy, give their take on a big issue, or call someone out for their behavior. On the internet, we trade opinions like kids swapping sandwiches in a cafeteria. So how does that machine work? Why do people share their thoughts on social media? Which posts go viral? And how is it shaping our view of the world? You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And this week I talk to Billy Brady. He's a computational social psychologist and postdoctoral scholar at Yale University. He studies how people discuss moral and political issues online. In addition to conducting experiments of his own, he also dives into what people are actually saying and sharing online, analyzing massive datasets for patterns in the words people use. So I talked to Billy about his research and the peculiar nature of our online social lives. So as I was thinking about the work that you do, I was sort of wondering if if it comes down to like the use of language to talk about polarizing issues online. Does that fairly kind of summarize? I mean, you've done uh, you know a variety of things, but does that kind of summarize the the core of what you're interested in? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good description. I would put it a little more broadly as what type of expressions when used in political discussions make messages more likely to spread or to draw positive social feedback in the context of online networks like social media platforms so what what is it that got you into that area i mean did you did you bright-eyed enter grad school going this is what i'm going to do or or did it sort of unfold like that well the funny thing is the first study i did on this came out kind of in the middle of or in the aftermath, the very recent aftermath of the 2016 election and everything. And so most people assume I studied it because of that. But Mm. I actually have a background in, I was uh, involved in vegan activism in online platforms when I was in college a lot. And I think I was one of those people who was just very angry (laughs) on social media. And I started getting really interested in, and I think over time I learned like what things work and what things don't, if your goal is to make people think about these issues, these moral issues that you are raising. And I started to develop this kind of like working knowledge of what I thought were successful strategies. And it turns out there are, it really depends on a lot of different things. So I, I just thought, you know, I need to study this and um, empirically. And I was always interested in moral psychology as I started grad school, but it just so happens that when I was a second or third year 
in grad school, NYU started this social media and political participation group. And so I was like involved in some of the beginnings of that group. And it gave me the opportunity to think about how could I apply it apply my social psychological questions to the context of social media. And they were a big help in kind of exposing me to the different methods that could be used. So it was really just like good timing and a little bit of personal interest in that stuff. So when um, when you were saying you were interested in advocacy online, what were the kinds of platforms that you were engaged with? The kinds that you study now or, or, or other corners of the internet? Yeah, the kinds that I study now. I mean, I was predominantly using Facebook, Twitter, a little bit on other platforms. Like, I don't even know. I don't remember. This was like a long time. This was like when Facebook very recently came out because Facebook came out when I was a freshman in college. So I think that was like 2005 or so, or it might have been a year before that. But uh, but yeah, so it was like when the platforms were just coming out. Um, and I was like, whoa, what a great opportunity to uh, <laughs> to get some opinions out there. And the culture of those places were sort of still in flux, I, I feel like, right? Like Facebook was not what it is now as a, as a place where people, my, my recollection is it was not a place where people got as riled up as it is now. And so when you said that you mentioned anger as, as an emotion that you uh, experienced at the time, was that anger as a prompt for advocacy or anger at how other people were trying to get the message out? I think it was the anger as a prompt for advocacy because like, I think probably many of us have this experience when we, so it's really interesting to think about things that you sort of come to moralize when you haven't always moralized it. So Paul Rosen has talked about this process of moralization, right? Like, it was cigarette smoking or with eating animals as well. But you really feel the psychological shift when you just kind of always view something just as a normal behavior, say like eating animals, but then you start to develop these strong emotions and these passions towards something because you realize this is something that actually should be in the world domain, something that I think is wrong if you really push me on it. Um, and I think that kind of the way that it happened for me, at least in the beginning is I kind of started out being so upset about what was what what I perceive as sort of a, a lack of awareness of the issue. And the thing that I think really made me upset, um, and I hear, I think this is a common thread in a lot of things related to social justice, is when you think there's a system in place that is really creating a bunch of injustice at the sort of group level or the societal level. Um, and these, for first people who are interested in like, animal rights activism this is like lobbyists who are lobbying for factory farming these groups that are trying to make money at the expense of both animal and human suffering one might argue (laughs) (laughs) and the other thing that's odd about that example is that it is not normative for people to be irate about the system, right? And so some of that is like the the process of moralizing is not only attaching morals to it, but there's also sort of an awakening of like, wait, why haven't we always been having this view of this issue? And so I wonder if you think that there's something different about that kind of advocacy where you're really railing against, like you said, a system that's firmly in place versus you go, I'm fired up about an issue that there's already lots of traction about, right? So in some ways you might go like, same-sex marriage-related uh, advocacy these days might have a different flavor to it because there's already been so much traction as opposed to something that's like very new uh, as a, a topic of advocacy. Yeah, that's super. I mean, 
in a way, you kind of put it a little better what I was trying to say, which is that there are these specific issues that you don't normally view as moral. And then when you come to realize there's all this injustice going on and I was like participating in it. Yeah, it can be, I think the violation of expectation or something there makes it, makes you a little more upset. And to tie it into more recent things that I'm interested on social media, I mean, there's something, when you look at the the platforms now, there really is this sort of culture of what you might call like hot take morality, right? A lot of people seem, because there's so much discussion of morality, you see a lot of times people will try to say, well, hey, you haven't thought about this as being immoral, or this is not something enough people are talking about. And I think that's really interesting because there's so many dynamics on social media about, you know, how you're being viewed. And it almost creates this situation where, you know, people, they really want to, you don't want to be the person who's not thinking about something as moral when you should be because in our in the current climate i think especially on social media this is something that can make you fit into a group well you establish that this is something you care about just like everyone else should yeah it's interesting because i i could sort of see different motivations for doing this one is you go this is moral i'm fired up it is just an imperative that i share this view whereas what you're describing is something a little different which is like there's a social currency or a self-image bump that you could say, well, if I can contribute to this moral dialogue, I show that I belong to this conversation. Does it seem like those things happen in tandem? Or, or how would, you know, another question is just how would we know what kind of motivation a person would have? Is one more powerful than the other? Yeah, and this is this is something that I'm actively studying, I think is really interesting. So, so one thing, so I'll describe some evidence we have from behavioral studies. And one thing that we find very consistently, super robust finding, People who more strongly identify with their respective political group are much more likely to express themselves using this kind of strong moral emotional language, especially when it comes to political views. And the flip side to that is that if you give participants a bunch of ostensible people who have communicated on a social media platform and you ask them to make judgments about these people, the message authors that express themselves using moral emotional language they're viewed as much more identified with their political group than the people who use neutral language. And so that makes sense. And you can think about that as giving them a bit of a reputational advantage, you could call it, or what I just call like, it makes them more likely to fit into the group because you can say, well, if I'm a strongly identified Democrat or something, these people must be too because they're expressing themselves in this type of way. But there is a catch to that because that's only true for an in-group member. So if you are an out-group member, we show that authors who express themselves using moral and emotional language like outrage, an out-group member will say that they think the person is less open-minded and compared to different types expressing themselves. And they also say that they're less likely to have uh, a political discussion with that person. And we see almost like floor flex like, is really low. And so there's always this interesting component, which is thinking about the function of expressing moral and emotional language on social media, both in terms of what it does for you and also maybe for persuasion, which is something you study more. I haven't studied persuasion as a DB per se, but I have studied diffusion and sharing. So in terms of sharing, it can give you, it can be functional and give you an advantage in terms of your in-group, but can also have this backlash for the out-group. So it's definitely sort of a complicated thing that's moderated by the, the identity of the group members. If you were to give advice, would it be 
right? To use this kind of moral emotional language when speaking to like-minded others, but not when speaking to those of a different political affiliation. Is that sort of the, the lesson from that? Yeah, well, it, so of course, I'm going to say it's more complicated than that. And I realize we haven't really defined what I mean by moral and emotional language. So let me just give some examples real quick. Of course, one caveat to this definition is that the exact way you can express that language sort of changes based on your group and the norms in the group. But in general, the way we have studied it is by looking at some words that generally signal the context of morality and emotion. So for us, this is words like abuse, disgusting, destroy. So these are these words that are sort of emotionally evocative, but also have this signal that a moral context is being referenced. And it can also be positive, by the way. It's not just negative. So some words that we found are associated with viral tweets, especially in the context of elections, we've done a study on this, um, would be words like hero, honor, save. So you can use positive language as well. It's not just uh, negative, although that tends to get a lot of attention. And just to give like a concrete example, I'm going to do something on the fly here. Maybe you can edit this out if it doesn't work. But if we just look at like (laughs) Donald Trump, let's just look at his tweets. He's always using this type of stuff. Give me one second. Okay. (laughs) Okay. This is perfect. So that did did not take you long at all. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this is like a tweet he sent hours ago. So this is like right up on his feed. So here's what he said. We can't let the fake news and their partner, the radical left, do nothing Democrats, get away with stealing the election. They tried it in 2016. How did that work out? So I already recognize one word that is straight from our lexicon that we've used in some of our previous studies, which is stealing. I think radical is, but I need to confirm that. But so there's at least one of these words that we classify as moral emotional. And this tweet has 28,000 retweets, 110,000 likes already. It was tweeted a couple hours ago. So there's a concrete example of the type of language we're talking about. Um, sorry, where were we going with that? I don't know. Well, so one, one question I have is, well, I guess two questions. One is, you've been talking about moral emotional language, which assumes that there's something unique about the combination of those things. Off the top of your head, could you talk about moral non-emotional language? Can that exist? Or or are morals and emotions hand in hand? Yeah, totally. Um, I think there's an inherent difficulty in making a clean-cut distinction between those two concepts you brought up. One, because we know from lots of work in moral psychology that morality and emotionality are inner- inherently intertwined. So some words that might be, that we would consider in our approach, at least in our previous studies, to be moral and less emotional. So I'll use the word less rather than not emotional. These would be words like ally, church, judge. So these are these are words taken from lexicons designed to measure morality that do not co-occur in other lexicons that intend to measure emotion now, emotion, emotion expression. So This word-by-word approach, I should mention, is definitely not perfect, and it comes with some uh, noise and limitations in measurement. And in some of my newer work, we use more fancy natural language processing methods, but those have their limitations as well. But the nice thing about lexicons is they're so easily interpretable. So lexicons just being, it's a list of words. Anytime one of those words shows up in a message, you say, well, this message contains that word, right? And so that is then treated as a different kind of message than a message that doesn't have 
that word or as many of those words, right? So you can say this tweet has six moral words in it. And so it's more moral than this other tweet that has none of those words in it. Exactly. So what's the what's the fancy version of that? Well, there's methods you can use that don't rely on lexicon or words that you sort of come up with in a top-down way as a researcher. You can use a combination of this top-down lexicon approach and data-driven methods. So something that we've done is actually expanding the lexicon that we've come up with by using what are called word embeddings. And basically what you can do is you could ask, for instance, in a data-driven way, what are some of the words that most frequently co-occur with this word that I'm interested in? And in that way, you can kind of expand your lexicon to get a little more coverage. But then there's also, of course, other methods where you don't even have to rely on lexicons. You can give a model a bunch of different labels. So let's say, for instance, I'm interested in moral outrage, which I actually am. Uh, you can, if you have a labeled data set of tweets, whether or not they express moral outrage, you can just feed it to a model and the model can learn what linguistic features are associated with tweets that express moral outrage versus don't. And so then you might be able to better understand, you know, how language is actually used in the context of Twitter. And you're not just looking at these specific words, which, again, in some contexts might signal moral and emotional language, but in others might not. You can better capture context with some of these uh, more sophisticated approaches. So it sounds like if you train a computer program to do this based on the inputs, it's almost like you're replacing what you might want to do, which is just give a message to a person and say, is this expressing moral outrage? But rather than, you know, have to do that a million times with a million people, you can make that more automatic. So at the end of the day, hopefully what you're getting, it sounds like, is a sense of when someone looks at this message, would they interpret it as moral outrage? Is that sort of what you're describing? Exactly. The idea, especially with some of the techniques that we've used recently, it's generally called supervised learning. So the idea is that you can use human annotators or expert annotators and provide it some data so that it can learn these features. But then ultimately, you can have that model go and make predictions about new data. And the idea would be, yes, that you're the huge advantage of this is you don't have to, you know, hand label a million tweets, you can do it in about 10 seconds with this, uh, the model that you've developed. And <laughs> It's great. It's, it's not perfect. There's lots of, um, there's some limitations and it's not going to ever be a, a perfect predictor. But again, imagine trying to label a million tweets. In fact, in my um, a paper I'm working on now that's under review, we had 11 million tweets. So imagine trying to hand label that. That's just not feasible. feasible. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's lots of advantages to using these, these models. But importantly, and I think this is where social psychologists like you and me come in to make the labels that you train the model on. It's really important to use theory and think about what are the features that I should train annotators to be looking for when they're making their labels, because there's this idea of garbage in garbage out. If you, if the model is learning sort of bad or random features, it's going to be horrible when it predicts to new data sets, even if it could, you know, overfit the data and learn, uh, how to perform well in the training set. If we so, this is also um, raising a question I had a little bit ago about the lexicon approach, which is that if I go okay, so let's strip it down and just say the simple version is there's six emo uh, six moral emotional words in this tweet, 
And uh, as you found, the more of those there are in a tweet, the more likely it is to get retweeted. That summarizes what you found, right? Mm -hmm. So what do I as the Twitter user experience when I come across that tweet that's different than when I come across a tweet that doesn't have that kind of language, right? So in some ways, when you were listing some of the words, maybe people are thinking, well, does that is that necessarily moral? Why does that mean that it's moral? So do you know if people are interpreting these as moral tweets or they're, they're just communicating something intangible that's spurring uh, sharing actions? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we show in pilot data that people will reliably bin both individual words that we call moral emotional and tweets that contain the words as having more uh, being more related to morality and having more emotionality than other control tweets or words. So there is a sense in which people can recognize that. Now, whether that's the experience of the user when they see the whole tweet in a context, I'm not exactly sure about that. But we have studied some of the psychological motivations and some of the sort of cognitive processes that make us more attracted to this type of language or these type of tweets. And some of it that we focused on that I mentioned before is related to our identity as a political group member. So social media is a context in which our group identities are highly salient. You see political tweets as soon as you log on. Um, in fact, there is a recent poll coming out of Pew that, sh that suggested 94% of users report seeing at least a little bit of political content in their social media feeds. So um, and I think this for anyone who's like, especially on Twitter, for anyone who's active and um, uh, especially with the election coming up, you'll see your feed is all full of this kind of stuff. And so in these contexts, when our group identities are highly salient, we know from social identity theory that we tend to identify ourselves in terms of the group, sometimes more than the individual. And that means that our emotion expressions, our feelings, our behavior sometimes act on behalf of the group. And so if you see these, say, like outgroup tweets or these in-group tweets that are expressing outrage, um, you know, you can think about those tweets as um, affirming your group identity or sometimes if they're coming from the outgroup, threatening your group identity. And so there's something about this language, I think, that tends to draw engagement from the perspective of group identity. It can serve these functions that can help, like I said, either affirm or protect against threat. Because if you sanction the political outgroup, then it makes your, your group look better by comparison. The other thing that we've looked at is how these words actually just capture our attention. So they have an attentional advantage in the what has been called the attention economy of social media. So there's an immense stream of content and noise just always being pushed through. As if you log on Twitter, you've got to scroll and there's all kinds of stuff. When you see these types of language, what we've shown in a combination of experiments and some observational studies on Twitter, this type of language captures our attention significantly more than other type of language that isn't as arousing or emotional and moral. And so there's something just from like a basic perceptual level that, that might draw us in. Of course, it's more complicated than that. Basically, to conclude, what we argue is that there's these psychological motivations that are based in group identity. There's this cognitive component. Our attention is captured. But then there's also just how the platforms are designed, which we haven't discussed. There are certain features of the platform that just kind of incentivize or feed us this type of content. 
Is there any concern that what you've found has made its way to the algorithms that show people things? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's that is something I always think about, especially as I just read the uh, the Trump tweet. Maybe the uh, Democrats and Republicans are reading these papers. I'm not sure. But uh, I, I think and it's actually an interesting question in the context of disinformation, because another thing that we're studying now is what type of language that disinformation profiteers try to use to get their content to spread. And I presented some data at our so annual social psychology conference, SPSP, where we found preliminary evidence that in 2017 through 2018, sorry, 2016 through 2018, the group known as the Internet Research Agency, this was a disinformation group that was had origins in Russia, they tended to use moral outrage expression in combination with disinformation links. And their use of outrage expression was about double when they had a disinformation link compared to when it was either no link or uh, authentic information link. So there might be something that these algorithms or these groups are just kind of discovering about that just through trial and error. Um, and I think that is something that we do have to continue to study because it also might suggest certain interventions or certain ways to detect this type of disinformation. And of course, you know, there's a lot of worry about COVID-19 disinformation and people <laughs> learning about these fake remedies and actually trying them on themselves. It's, it's a bad situation right now. Could those, well, I'll, I'll hold off on that. I was going to, I was going to maybe connect that to moral outrage. I guess actually what I was going to ask you next is, what, what do we mean by moral outrage? We sort of alluded to it uh, a few times, and it. My impression is that this is an area that you've, you're actively pursuing now. And so, what what does that mean? What does it mean to be morally outraged or to witness someone else express moral outrage? Yeah. So, moral outrage is generally thought of. Well, you can think of it as different conditions that elicit or cause the emotion, the experience, and then the consequences. So, moral outrage is an emotion that is typically caused by a perception that someone has transgressed against us, our sense of a moral norm. So if you have a certain system of morality, you perceive someone has transgressed against that, some injustice perhaps, that is typically a cause of moral outrage. And it comes along with an, a very specific experience that is usually described as a combination of anger and disgust, basically a high arousal negative experience. And there are specific consequences as well that are associated with moral outrage. And that is typically the tendency to blame and the tendency to punish. So it's, it's this emotion that's very tied in morality because that's how it's triggered. Uh, it has a very specific experience and then its consequences are also uh, quite specific. So when you put those together, I think you can describe the general idea of moral outrage. So it's a high arousal emotional reaction to what seems like a moral violation that sort of package the pieces together yeah i think i think that's pretty good but it sounds like that is about the like you said the causes and consequences is this one of those cases where moral outrage is sort of a fuzzy latent variable in between or like by measuring what did you say anger and disgust is that what you said anger and disgust mm -hmm. like is that mo a moral outrage or is that just sort of like well moral outrage produces that so we infer someone experienced moral outrage because they had those feelings. 
Well, certainly some people have argued that outrage just is a combination of anger and disgust. But again, I like to think about emotions in terms of different components. I mean, I think, I think I've been most influenced by appraisal theories that try to think about different appraisals. And I think if you consider these appraisals that are really concerned with this level of moral abstraction, I think that's when you start to talk about moral emotions. Um, but one thing you can agree upon is how you measure it. And I think by identifying these three different components of an emotion, that's a good way to start measuring it. And so when you find evidence of moral outrage online in social networks, social media, what are you looking for, right? You sort of alluded to training uh, an algorithm to capture these sorts of things. And then also what, what do we know about moral outrage based on what you're seeing in these social networks? Yeah, so really the way that we train annotators is by having them recognize the three components I just mentioned. Um, so we give them a lot of examples and we have them look for either explicitly, uh, sorry, explicit expressions of anger and disgust, for example, or implied context of morality. And some of these are very easy to detect. Some of them are a little more ambiguous. There's always, there always is a little bit of um, ambiguity with the with complex psychological concepts. So this is always a challenge in measuring it. Um, for example, one thing that's kind of difficult to distinguish, and we've been working on this, is what we call pure trolling from moral outrage. And you know, sometimes people appear to be outraged because they're expressing swear words, anger, but if you have a broader context of like who the person is, you might, or, you know, of Twitter in general, you might think that they're uh, just trolling or making fun. And so we really try to distinguish this idea that someone is trying to using this language to poke fun rather than they might seem like they genuinely feel it, try to distinguish that, but it's not perfect. And the other thing is that using some of these word embedding approaches, you can better capture context. So that helps with some of these issues. And so when you are there, I'm assuming you're not just counting up instances of moral outrage and just saying, ah, it's prevalent. Now we know this, but but you're looking at it in some sort of context or what its consequences are. What are you learning about what happens when a, a tweet or a message expresses moral outrage? Yeah. So actually, I think the question of is moral outrage increasing is actually pretty interesting, although it's very hard to have a definitive answer to that on Twitter because it's hard to know base rates. But um, what we see in a paper that we have under review right now, at least among politically active users, so these are users who were able to estimate ideology based on an algorithm that tracks what type of political account users follow. So what I should say more specifically is people who we estimate to be more extreme in their ideology, um, this group of users in a, in a pretty large sample we have has definitely shown a significant increase in outrage in the past couple of years from, I think we measure about 2014 to 2019. When we look at users who are less ideologically extreme, we see a significant increase, but notably smaller. So the question of whether outrage has been increasing, I think it's just interesting because there is this running narrative that we're just in this age of moral outrage and it's like higher than ever before. And certainly that's true according to survey data. We see some corollaries of that online on Twitter, um, but it does seem to be mostly for these people who are the most ideologically extreme. Um, and now to get back to your question about some other things we're looking at, one of the things we're interested in is social learning, how people learn 
from others' feedback in the context of social media? And does that affect their outrage expression? And the reason why we're interested in that is because of this idea I brought up a couple minutes ago about how the design of social media features of the platform have the potential to encourage us to engage with certain content or to make us more likely to express ourselves in certain ways. And I think one thing that's interesting is to look at how receiving social feedback on a tweet by tweet basis might encourage you to express more or less outrage in the future. And this is something that we're starting to look at in a number of studies, both behaviorally and on Twitter. And one of the things that we are finding so far is that Indeed, you can predict at least some variance in people's future outrage expression from social feedback that they uh, received in the past. And we show this, again, in behavioral studies as well. And the interesting thing that we're finding in the behavioral studies is it's actually a complicated story because it's very easy to think about us on acting on social media as just kind of getting all this feedback and getting reinforced for everything. But the way that humans learn is a little more complicated than that because we're also aware of social norms for communication that are present in our social network. And we learn extremely quickly from those norms that we perceive. So what we show in some of these studies is if you give people just literally like um, one minute glance at ways of expression in an ostensible network, they'll immediately learn what the norm of expression is, and they'll learn it so much that they don't even rely on feedback learning in subsequent trials that we give them. And so I think the one thing that we're learning uh, in some of these studies we're doing that are hopefully going to be coming out soon is that it's really a combination of being able to detect the norms of our environment and also the feedback that we receive. And so again, I always come back to this idea, if we want to understand our behavior, how we express outrage, why we're attracted to this moral and emotional content, we have to think about this interaction of psychology and technology. A lot of things that we bring to the table that you would find in any environment, like motivations to protect our group image or the things that capture our attention. But you also have to think about the things that social media does and the way that the environment is set up that can constrain our behavior and potentially promote some of these things. Or what I say, it amplifies some of these behaviors. A lot of what you do looks at text that already exists and the uh, implications it has for how people react to it, share it, and otherwise. Do we know as much about how people produce that kind of text? Part of what inspires that question is when you're talking about the um, uh, norms that people are sort of using norms as a way of shifting their expression, it sort of raises the question of the challenge of interpreting text is, is it strategic expression or natural expression, right? So there's some version of this where you go, like you're saying, I know, I, I've learned that the way to provocatively make this point is to use these kinds of words. Whereas kind of the the classic, you know, Jamie Pennebaker early stuff on language is just sort of saying, you, you no one's paying attention to the number of personal pronouns that they're putting into their essay. Mm -hmm. And yet their their thoughts in the moment are sort of leaking out onto the page. And so wh what do we know from that angle in terms of how this text is getting produced? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So I've studied that in the context of why people share things. And sharing is interesting, because in a way, it's production, you are 
putting out a text that you shared to your profile. So it's as if you produced it, um, but you didn't quite compose it. So it's a little different, but um, at least in behavioral studies, when you ask people, why did you share this like moral and emotional content that sanctions the out group? Overwhelmingly, the thing that participants report is, oh, I wanted other people to see this information. So it seems to have some kind of like informational motivation. Um, some people say, well, I agreed with it, like I endorsed this. And then maybe 1% of people say, oh, I really wanted to troll people and quote, I make fun. So at least overwhelmingly, usually like 85% of people say, oh, I just wanted people to see this information. So that's when it comes to sharing. When it comes to composing this, t- this specific type of content, I think it has, to, I, so I haven't studied this personally and I'm not aware of a lot of studies that have looked at this, but it has to be to me, if I am to make a prediction um, that is recorded yeah, for all time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it has to be a combination of the two aspects that you talked about, right? Because sometimes, and just, just think about your own experience on social media, like, Sometimes people just start typing stuff out of, say, anger of something someone said, and they and they send it out in seconds. Sometimes they delete it. Uh, actually, you see a lot of this during the COVID conversations. Um, uh, people who have said, mm. uh, I've seen this a lot, like, oh, I deleted this earlier tweet. Uh, a lot of this have been debates about like the meta science of psychology and COVID, which is a whole other interesting discussion. But, but then again, think about a, a time when you tweeted something and there's radio silence. Like no one likes it. No one interacts with it. I had done that before. And I just delete the tweet. <laughs> yeah. And so like to say that you're not thinking about like the social implications of what you're doing is ridiculous. Like, of course, people are doing that. Maybe sometimes not as explicitly, but we all can think of these times when we're just we're social creatures. We're always aware of the social norms. And I think one thing that social media does is it makes those things very salient. And so it definitely plays at least some role in the composition of this type of message. And the other thing I I would add is social media is interesting because the dynamics of social norms changes so rapidly, I feel like. We're just thinking about the internet in general. There's so much information diffusion, things like memes, things like language, things like jokes people are making is so rapid. If you take like a month off Twitter, (laughs) you're probably going to be confused when you come back, it almost seems like. So that makes it really, it makes it both interesting and challenging to study as a context. The the only other thing I was going to ask was, uh, have you done any work on animal welfare related advocacy? seems like that was the seed of a lot of this, but I'm curious if that has shown up in the actual work that you've done. Yeah, I haven't done any um, empirical studies that I have published. I have definitely dug around a bit. But given that you are an expert in moral persuasion, and I've done a lot of studies on uh, social media and information diffusion, I think you and I should do that study. Sounds great. All right. Well, that's a very hopeful <laughs> message to, to end on. So thanks for thanks for talking about your stuff and uh, looking forward to seeing what you have next. Well, thanks for having me, Andy. It was a lot of fun. That'll do it for this episode of Opinion Science. Thank you to Billy for coming on, and check out the show notes for a link to his website to learn more about the work that he's doing. For more about this show, visit opinionsciencepodcast.com or follow us at OpinionSciPod on Twitter or Facebook. 
As always, if you're enjoying this show, it would be a big help if you stopped by Apple Podcasts and left a nice review. This is a pretty new show and your reviews help people find it. Well, that's all I've got for this week. So I'll see you back next time for more opinion science. Bye-bye. Thank you.